a, a TV show at night called the Domenica Sportiva, which was basically like a highlights show. Oh my God, Genoa just scored against Roma. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> week's episode, we discuss how our teams are looking eight games into the season and debate the rules of VAR. We also chat with our friend Pete on growing up an Italian football fan in America, talking about everything from the youth football system in the U.S. to his 48-hour round trip from the U.S. to Italy to watch Genoa play at home. Stay tuned. Well, I can start with my hot take, which I am. Uh, get, it's getting hotter and hotter because Chelsea are getting better and better, but... Uh, um, ever since that nil draw with Man United, we've been banging in the goals and keeping them away, uh, and then keeping from conceding. So, I mean, our defense looks hella solid. Uh, the attacks are flowing together. Ziyech with his magician's left foot is is uh, creating nonsense. So, I'm I'm optimistic. Uh, potential title contenders. That was a that was a pretty cheesy um, introduction for Chelsea there, Jane. <laughs> I'm getting happier and happier with our performances but I mean I think my United uh, well Dinesh I want to know your thoughts because there's a lot of Ole outs uh, coming out um, so is Ole still at the wheel yeah I mean uh, match day 7 was not so not so good for, for United um, it's just hard because I, I think it's a double standard I, I feel I'm starting to notice a double standard, I think, in, in general, because we're not playing too great, but um, I wouldn't say we're playing horrible. Um, we're still, right now, as it stands, we're only six points behind the top. If you compare that to last season, like uh, six points from the top would have been second, third, fourth, fifth. But just because the season's been so crazy, um, it just looks like we're, we're doing terrible. But yeah, we lost to Arsenal, didn't play too well. But then I think came back against Everton this past weekend. Uh, also didn't play amazing, but we still got the results. Definitely nowhere near as, as strong as how Chelsea have been. But uh, the reason I say double standard is just because, you know, I think there have been other teams as well that have not performed as consistently. Um, but I think media and a lot of different angles are just always looking to... Uh, to to kind of shit on on United whenever yeah. there's a chance um which is i mean it's understandable right like i like for the past 20 30 years there's this been this build up and so whenever there's a chance to you know knock on on United's perch then then people will take it but for me personally i think ole i want ole to stay but um it's going to be hard to say because this 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 game in Premier League and football right now is it's very much dictated by media. So yeah. we'll see in December because there's going to be a lot of games, and if it's if he's not consistent, then he, he may just be out, which will be unfortunate. But we'll see. And you got a good point. Like I think like Everton is one of those teams that we're kind of like not focusing on, but they've also fallen off quite a bit. Yeah. Um, mm. And I mean, and I don't think Man City is doing too hot either. I mean, I think that, you know, Leeds came into the season with such a bang and the past 
two um, weeks of fixtures have been just really disappointing to watch. Um, but I also think that it really highlights kind of the lack of depth on the bench of a lot of these teams that are just making their way back up to the limelight and back up to the top leagues, right? So we, we you know, Phillips is out, um, Rodrigo is out um, as he's been in contact with someone with COVID and that's really drastically impacted us. I think a lot more than it would maybe a team with Chelsea, like Chelsea uh, rather, um, you know, because there's so many more players that you have on the bench that could come in, uh, which is just not as much the case of, at Leeds United. But at the yeah. same time, like, Two four one losses is a really heavy statistic, but I also think there's an element of that that's really really unlucky. Um, yeah. You know the Leicester Leeds match within three minutes that Barnes goal. I mean, from there on it was just an uphill battle. And then in particular against Palace, I mean, the Costa yeah. the deflection. Um, where was he near the quarter post? The deflection into the net off his foot. I mean, we could go into detail. I'd rather not really about Bamford's offside um, and the fact that he was mm. putting his arm out to pointing where it was going and that was considered offside. I mean, to me, those are just quite unlucky. I mean, particularly Costa, that was one of the most unfortunate goals. I mean, I guess that's a that's a good segue because uh, I know we wanted to talk about VAR um, quite a bit. Um, some of us had our had our little um, qualms about it in general, but maybe we can talk about, about Bamford's goal. Like, Iguania, obviously, as a Leeds fan, your first impression is that should have been cold. But like in hindsight, now that it's, it's, it's the game is over, um, a couple of days have gone. Like, what are your thoughts on VAR specifically for the Bamford uh, offside? Well, I think that VAR is really interesting to me because in the championship it didn't exist, right? Um, and I'm really torn between the concept of VAR because while it makes things more standardized and it makes things more scientific. I don't know, it takes away a bit of kind of the essence of the football game that, that you know, that we've known for so long. And and I think that reevaluating that offside rule in general, someone pointing their arm out is that offside. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm inclined to say, no, I don't agree with the decision, but that's just because I'm a Leeds fan. Um, and it's really hard for me to, you know, take a step back and look at it objectively. Um, but the one thing I will say about VAR is it just does take away from a little bit of the excitement of the game, especially when you have to stop and pause. It takes one, two minutes to go back and look. I mean, I appreciate kind of the value add it has in terms of standardizing the game, but to me, it just takes away a bit from the excitement. I, I agree with you completely. I think that um, we're focused, like I, I, keep, I think I've said before, but we're focusing on the wrong things. Uh, in terms of correcting the game with VAR. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I mean, a great example of that uh, is this week with the whole handball rule that we have uh, with the penalty that was given against Wolves and the penalty that was given against Liverpool. Uh, both of them were, I think, we, we can argue that, you know, maybe, the, yes, the hand was in an unnatural position, but like, you know, it, was, he was, it wasn't there on purpose. He was trying to get away from the ball, uh, in Gomez's case, at least. Um, I don't know. I, I think that, you know, the, the VAR, with that, well, this specific um, application of VAR uh, just doesn't make sense. And it kind of ruins, takes some of the, um, I don't know, it, it, we focus on the wrong things. Is, mm. is, 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 so I don't know. maybe um, we, can, we can spin it another way because it seems like uh, every um, 
media outlets, Sky Sports, uh, NBCSN, and even us, right? I'm not going to say we're, we're on that level, but uh, uh, even, even us, like, it's like we have these issues. And then for some reason, I've, I always assume that after the issues have been brought up, a uh, week will go by and then we'll have the issues again and we'll be equally shocked uh, uh, the following week. Um, yeah. And both of you have mentioned that, like, it takes away. Um, I, yeah. I, I remember I noticed both of you saying that, that it takes away from the game. And then for you, Jay, it's like it's like um, we're focusing on the wrong thing. So I guess the question back is, is what what should would be the solution like in your eyes because I'm trying to put this in my head in terms of how the referees would look at it um, arguably they, they definitely assess throughout the week it's not like they they go and play they go and referee the games and then during the week all they do is go and stay fit they definitely assess far yeah what what would be a solution like what's what's a maybe like a solution framework or not even a solution framework just like how would should they approach it well in terms of the handball thing I think that how they had in the past where they gave defenders at least a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. Um, because now I think it's a blanket rule. If, if the hand is away from the body above the shoulder or in an unnatural position, it's like a hundred percent given as a penalty, mm-hmm. which, which is, which makes sense logic, uh, like from a, from a purely objective standpoint, but in some situations that we've seen that we've argued about is we've seen that, um, you know, that might not always be the case. So I think maybe giving that benefit of doubt back, to, to this is one way to do it yeah. and then on the other hand I, I kind of like to to ask your question again with some more like for my with my opinion is that you you're right in that I don't know what more you can do at this point because the stuff that we talk, argue about the offsides for example right if we don't say that oh it shouldn't be millimeters millimeters shouldn't count then then what should it be you know if it's there to be as precise as possible and if and then now we argue it shouldn't need to be that precise um you know then when do we where do we draw the line of oh is it okay it is not okay like if it's mm. like the back thing where like his sleeve was offside you know like yeah. where, where do we draw that line and i don't think we can do that so either we have it comp- like in the in the form that it is or we don't and i guess that's something that i think we need to come to terms with uh, that's just my opinion maybe maybe we can scrap right. it up. yeah well i think i think that i think that one of the things that hasn't been factored in that is generally factored in when it comes to kind of refs making these calls um, is intention. Uh, Dinesh, I mean, Jaheen, you touched upon it, but intention does matter a lot, right? And so I think that the the arm up in that natural position, automatic penalty, I mean, there is some question there, but I also think that, um, Jaheen, you're right, VAR doesn't fix what's wrong with, a lot of the problems that have, you know, that have happened before VAR. And I think that it means it's more important to kind of standardize the rules and get rid of the gray area within the rules, because then VAR clearly shows something and there's still that gray area that makes it content, you know, makes these kinds of decisions contentious still. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I guess we, we, we've kind of come to the crux of it, which is the fact that we're trying to play something objective, an objective rule on a subjective game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The American football and baseball are, you know, relatively speaking, more objective. And so yeah. when they bring in augmented reality um, and sort of checks and technology checks, it's a little bit less um, difficult to manage because it's the game, the, the, sport in, the sports are intrinsically more objective. Yeah, but with with football, it's like 
even without VAR, how many years has it been since we've been sitting in front of the television and arguing about a call that the ref has made? Yeah. So it's just it's just that it's just that now we have uh, something more to blame, right? We have a second tier to blame. Yeah. yeah. And and we hold obviously technology to a higher um, standard than human error. If we had it back in the day, we wouldn't have had moments like the hand of God for Maradona. Um, right. You know, <laughs> England got uh, when that Frank Lampard goal was disallowed. I believe it was 2006 World Cup. Mm. Uh, didn't get them through to the quarterfinals or something. Like these moments are all moments that we at least talk about. Like even for me as a Chelsea fan, that 20, 2000, uh, I believe 2011, 2009 uh, Champions League game against Barcelona, where the ref robbed us. To be very honest, um, <laughs> like, it's a talking point at this point, right? Then it's going to be different. Um, so I mean I don't know it it we I feel like we talked about we have a lot more to talk about before we had VAR and now it's like every other week there's there's this there's that but they're all so minute in mm. their significance yeah that I don't know I, I we we might we we may very well be talking about these decisions for for years to come and like a lot of us Dinesh you particularly were saying that these could be t- title um, deciding situations or season defining situations so. Exactly. Uh, for better or for worse, it's here. So we I, we just have to find a way to deal with it. Yeah. Un- unfortunately, um, for all, I think it's going to be one of those iterative processes that, like, mm-hmm. uh, we we never know when it'll be a, we'll be able to blanketly say VAR is perfect. Um, yeah. And until then, we'll just continue to be shocked and angry. I think. <laughs> um, every week and uh it, it, the, the the for me the toughest part is now i i can see how players play and they're playing differently because of it yeah yeah so that's that's for me more than anything um the saddest part because it's like uh, i think there was one defender who, who was saying like uh, uh, one defender who who was a commentator who was saying like now coaches have been telling their defenders to put their hands behind their back but when i was a defender my manager would chew me out for putting my hands behind my back yeah you know like it's it's a it's changing the game a bit um so yeah but, and then you and then you have the teams that are coming up from from the, the second division from the championship um you know as from elites who are having to then adjust to that on top of any, everything else because they're not even playing with it across all the leagues it's only the premier league that uses them Exactly. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah. So, so today we have a we have a special guest joining us, Peter Giovato. Um, he's been a good friend of ours since uh, our college days at Georgia Tech. Wow, it seems kind of like a while a while back, but um, yeah, we decided to bring Pete on to uh, well, first to speak um, because you know he loves soccer, and then secondly, um, like us, he's a pretty Pretty interesting uh, relationship with the sport. Pete's a first-generation American, but his family's from Italy, uh, Genoa to be specific. Um, so that's like northwestern part of Italy, close to relatively close to Milan and Turin. And he's been playing soccer all his life, and was actually also on the the club team at university. Um, and then now, um, you know, despite the, the many offers he's gotten from uh, professional football teams. <laughs> he's he's opted for a career in electrical engineering and yeah since i met him his his fifa skills have, have deteriorated considerably 
But yeah, Pete, I hope that that intro did you justice. You are our second guest ever on this show. Oh, I'm so honored, guys. Thank you. I've I've listened to all of them and having so much fun with, especially the hot takes have been a lot of uh, fun to listen to and just be like, nah, that's not possible while just listening to guys. (laughs) You might win the league. (laughs) That was my favorite one. It's hard. It's hard with Pete because uh, he doesn't have a specific team in the Premier League, so he can always shit on United. But I can never like shit on him um, for for any any of the teams. Yeah, I guess I guess we brought you on to learn more about I guess your bicultural upbringing and how that's impacted your perspectives. American soccer, it doesn't really have that colorful of a history or that deep of a history um, as other countries, but. Things have definitely sped up since we were born, I guess. And in contrast, you know, Italy has been around the sport for ages and is one of the, arguably one of the most successful national teams in the history of the World Cup. Um, So maybe we could kick it off with you talking a little bit about some of your early memories, some of your soccer roots um, and early influences. Yeah. So uh, first of all, I just want to thank you guys for having me on the show, on the podcast. Definitely very honored. So yeah, um, as you said, first generation American uh, with roots in Italy. So soccer has been, well, football, football has been, uh, calcio has been part of my life um, since I was born. Both my dad, well, all of my dad's side of the family is very into football, uh, unfortunately into a uh, terrible team, uh, Genoa. But ever since I can remember, we've, we've always spent either days playing soccer um, or or watching it um, on TV. As 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 far as the Italian influences go, I've always had um, my whole dad's side of the family always talking to me about about football, always calling me, and that's usually the first thing we talk about um, about how we're sad about general losing most likely that weekend, um, and about uh, uh, everything that's that's going on. I mean, I just remember like years like two thousand nine when uh, uh, Genoa had. Diego Milito and I was literally talking to my family every single day about how many goals he was going to score and how we were fourth in the league and this is the greatest thing that's ever happened and Jen was always going to be good for the rest of our lives and of course that never happened but all these conversations have been part of it since since forever um from my from my when my dad was young they used to spend Sundays watching all the games um in Italy and then they had um uh, a TV show at night called the Domenica Sportiva, which was basically like a highlights show. Oh my God, Genoa just scored against Roma. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's great. Uh, the, dedication, the dedication that you've taken to come on and talk to us during the match is, is great. Um, so appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> I was totally expecting to not have to do that because I did not think they would do anything. But... Uh, Okay, I forget where I was. But so a lot of these relatives were in Italy while you were in America, right? So it's kind of like when you visited or when you called them and things like that. So yeah, absolutely. Whenever we called, whenever we called, it was straight to talking about uh, Genoa and football, and then uh, just for like everything that I was doing was pretty much oriented into watching Genoa. Uh, a lot of my birthdays, uh, well, not a lot of them, but a couple of them. My birthday kind of falls around Thanksgiving, so we usually had like a couple days, like four or five days of break from school. And there were a couple of years where me and my dad would literally just 
fly to Italy, go watch a go watch a general match, and then pretty much the next day fly back and in the meantime eat really good food and spend time with family for a couple of days. But I mean, those are some of my greatest memories. Uh, especially, there was one year when we would go watch. We went specifically just to go watch the derby against Sampdoria, and Genoa had won three zero. Um, we celebrated by eating like truffles and 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 mushrooms uh, the next day. <laughs> so that's the kind of memories that kind of stick with me and and how football kind of is part of our lives as 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 Italians, I guess. That's amazing. Um. I, I do have a question because I know that, you know, you have this, this, there's so much influence there when it comes towards Italian uh, football in particular, but growing up in America, were you into the MLS? Um, were, were you, did you follow American f- football as well? And just a quick note that we keep switching quite fluidly between soccer and football, <laughs> uh, but that's only ever happened because we're talking about football in America. But um, yeah, yeah, I guess um, I'd be interested to hear kind of if if it was mainly Italian football that you followed in the Italian leagues, or if you did watch the MLS as well. I mostly followed the Italian league. Um, MLS was not really part of, of, of the, the football I would watch, uh, except for whenever we had uh, like team trips to go watch DC United. Um, and at that time they were playing in RFK stadium, which was one of the worst stadiums ever for football. So it was. It wasn't even like that much fun to go watch because you were at a gigantic stadium that was had maybe ten thousand people in it in a stadium that could fit like eighty, ninety thousand people, and it was just it was just the wrong place to be having mm-hmm. football matches. Yeah. Um, so now they now that they actually changed the stadium to like a um, a twenty thousand uh, people stadium, I've been going more often and just the the quality of it has been a little bit better so it's it's a little bit more fun to watch but I, I mean I remember there was sometimes just watching it where I was just like why am I watching this I could be watching Italian football and it's just so much more fun to do or uh, even yeah. just uh, Premier League at the beginning it was just not fun to watch and I think that kind of solidified me not being into it as much as 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 before as now yeah um yeah, no, I, I, I completely get that, um, especially, you know, growing up in America as well, um, but with the UK background. Um, but when you were in Atlanta at Georgia Tech, did you start to get into Atlanta United? Because I know that, you know, the first two seasons, it was just such a phenomenon to watch them in Atlanta. And everyone who was a football fan of, of any team, any league around the world, I felt really got into it because it was so much fun. Yeah, so that's actually something I really regret uh, because the first day they played at the at the at the um, at Bobby Dodd at the Georgia Tech Stadium, and I had actually worked that event, so I was helping people go to the stadium, like telling them where they need to go. Uh, we were actually specifically told like any purses anybody has, like let them know they probably should leave that in their car, or uh, or find some place to to leave it, like a friend's house or something. Um, but eventually, I couldn't get into the game. I actually tried going to the stadium, the the ticketer, the the people who were checking tickets, and be like, "Hey, I'm I'm working the event. I don't have a ticket. They just told me to get in, um, <laughs> to try to kind of sneak myself inside." That didn't end up working. Uh, I and then after that, I I haven't really watched them as much. But it's something I regretted just because of how how much it took off and how well they did in a debut season and and. I think they they won the 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 
the whole season the next the next year, right? So or, yeah, or two did. years later. Yeah, and that's I, kind well, of incredible. It was quite beautiful. Uh, yeah, it was quite beautiful for us, I think, to watch. Um, you know, because my dad is in Atlanta as well, and, and I think growing up, we were. It was very watching football was very much a family thing because our American friends didn't weren't nearly as into it unless it was the World Cup. Um, you know, and then I don't know if it was the same for you, but my dad and I would always really like watching America lose uh, because they only showed interest every four years. So it was really just quite nice to see the entire change of environment in Atlanta. Um, around <laughs> I kind of feel general. the, I definitely feel the uh, watching them lose uh, <laughs> just because of how much people didn't care until the World Cup happened and they thought they were going to do amazing. Um, but I guess, I guess an interesting question would be to ask next um, and we can move on. Um, but, you know, D.C., a lot of America, but D.C. in particular has quite a good youth soccer system. Um, and there's even been some pundits that have said uh, that it's better than some European countries' youth soccer systems. I mean, do you have any insight into this? And do you think that if this is the case and if you agree with that, why is it not that more Americans have made it into the big leagues? Yeah, so first I'll talk about, I'll, I'll talk about D.C. first. Uh, just because that's the, the and there's other places in in the U.S. that have great uh, youth coming up, like uh, even Miami. But I, I just don't have too much experience there. D.C. is great because of the just international uh, the amount of international people here. Um, so you're playing in in uh, youth leagues where you have people from all over the the world playing together, and I think that's definitely a big part as to why. Um, the, the, the football in D.C., uh, especially in the youth system, is pretty good. Um, I mean, I have – all my friends, are they're all from South America, uh, uh, Europe, and whenever we would come back home from, from school, it was straight to playing football together. Um, and I don't think that it, it's as easy to do that in other places, um, especially where football might not be as, as big. Um, as 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 big as something to do in in DC, but that was something we could easily do everywhere, and I think that's a huge part of youth development is is not just the um, the organized development, the youth leagues. It's it's also just the the how easy is it to just pick up and play. Um, I th- and I think that's done better in other countries. I think the biggest the biggest issue the U.S. has. Um, and I'm and I'm positive about this is that football in the U.S. is an expensive sport to have a kid play. Um, you're paying coaches, you're paying leagues, and that doesn't exist in any other country. Um, in in other countries, if you're playing football and you're good, someone's uh, paying for you to play, or uh, it, it doesn't cost that much to play in a league, and it doesn't cost that much to pay for coaches. I think that is the I think that's the the biggest issue that the U.S. has now, um, it, it's just become something that's, it's it's not something everyone can afford. And I think other sports in the U.S. currently have that, um, the ability of, of, of making it a little bit more accessible, um, kind of basketball and, and, and football in some lower income uh, neighborhoods are just so much, a little bit... Uh, better organized to make it a little bit more affordable for, for, for families that might not be able to afford having their kid play, play football. And I think that's the biggest issue the U S has. But, but uh, Pete, um, I guess on that, like um, 
I guess I was lucky for a couple of years to, to be um, living in DC um, when I was younger. And I guess I noticed like you could have, there were so many youth leagues and so many youth academies and there's so many tiers. Like there was the rec league um, where, you know, the fees weren't too high. Like a dad would be the coach. Then, then you could get into, you know, your high school or your middle school um, teams. And then you have your clubs where obviously it gets a little bit more expensive. And then it leads into uh, like the academies or the um, state teams. And like, yeah, I agree. Like it was, it was probably a, a certain, you had to have a certain, be in a certain socioeconomic uh, status, but may like from some of the conversations I've had in with some friends in Europe, like they didn't even have that sort of exposure at all. Do you, so like, I don't know. Do you think that, that, at least more, even though it's more expensive, a lot more people were ex- are exposed in the States when they're younger, or do you still think like other parts of the world, um, it's, it's a lot better. I don't know. It's, it's, that's, that's a hard question. I would say maybe the, the amount of people that are exposed might be higher, just not necessarily a higher percentage of the, of the population. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that changes anything, but in Italy, you're either playing, you're playing, you're playing football or you're, I don't know. You, I don't know what else you're doing there uh, as a kid, maybe playing rugby or like there's, and then there's just like all these other little sports that people are playing, but I would say everyone's playing football. And it, yeah, there, the, I guess the, the amount of, uh, of organized leagues is definitely uh, one of the benefits the U S has. Um, it's, it's, I think the issue just becomes once you get past those rec leagues, which you're really not going to the, there's not really development, but maybe introduction to football. As mm-hmm. soon as you're going into those clubs and those uh, any any sort of travel club, it's it becomes uh, a little bit less um, affordable. Uh, I know academies in particular. You you were there. We had friends who were flying almost every other weekend um, to go mm-hmm. to to go to football matches, to go to tournaments, and. I, I mean, the distance is also part of it. Uh, it. It's hard to, in D.C., if you were playing and, and trying to go uh, and, and needed to go to a different city, you're flying there. In Italy, in, in, in 20 minutes, you have, you've gone from um, Genoa to uh, some other cities outside of Genoa that also have uh, really good football clubs and, and, and really good uh, de- youth development teams that, that are, that are incredible and and it's a little bit easier to, to to travel around i mean going from genoa to milan is two hours while going from i don't know where you can get in two hours from dc yeah, or even right, atlanta right mm-hmm. that's true yeah i think a lot of it as well is like uh the a lot of the infrastructure you have in like a lot of european cities as well like concrete uh fields uh you don't see that as much um here in the states at least uh back in the day now they're starting to come up a bit like you have uh the little field on top of like the marta train station in, in atlanta so uh it's coming up a bit but uh do you think yeah it's it's um that that is also one of the reasons and then uh kind of as a follow-up to that you think that um you know how how this is different from how say in italy how the how uh, people develop um in this in their football yeah, so I, I mean, I think Italy has also had that issue uh, just of the the infrastructure uh, in general, in particular, it's it's kind of a rocky 
place where it's just literally on the water and then it's immediately mountains. So there's not much flat land. There's not much grass where you can have a field. So most of them, any good field is usually um, synthetic or, uh, uh, or if it's grass at all, it's most likely inaccessible to anybody else. Um, I think the U.S. is starting to get this, uh, but I know in D.C. a lot of times if you're going to a nice field, they're not going to let you play on there. Um, unless you have some sort of organized event going on. Um, and I think sometimes in Italy, it's just a little bit easier to go to a, 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 a field with, with four, five, six friends and start playing a game um, on like a nice field that has goals. And uh, sometimes in the U.S. it can be a little difficult to do that unless you have something organized because you're not allowed to be on the field. Mm. I guess one one kind of follow to that it's uh it's maybe a little bit more challenging of a question just because it's related to you but um keeping that in mind um do you think if you had grown up maybe in you know for five six years in italy um that maybe development would have been different for you personally and like it would have led to you know something else or um open more doors like what are your thoughts on that um, that's a good question. I think personally, just even before going to the development in Italy, I, I, I knew somewhat early on that I did not want to do play football for, for a living. I think it was, it, it's always been a dream, but, uh, once I had hit these clubs that were practicing, uh, every day and, and you're doing running and all these, uh, exercises and that kind of stuff is when football became a job. Uh, just for me personally, and that's when I started not liking playing. And I think that's, uh, I think, as far as development goes, as soon as I took a step back from that and started enjoying it more, is is when I also as a player became better just because of of, of my interest in doing that. So as soon as it became a job for me, I knew I didn't like it. So that's <laughs> kind of the point where I was like, okay, I I would never be able to do this as a professional. But Italy, as far as Italy goes, I I don't know. I have um, it, it's it's hard to tell because uh, I have cousins who are playing there all the time. Who are the, they? They were also very good at uh, at football. Um, and the development is I I wouldn't really necessarily say it's different. Um, I I think I've been pretty fortunate to have good good practices, good training in the U.S. So I I don't think anything would have changed. Uh, unless I was picked up by a youth, uh, by a youth development team, like a, the, the general youth team or something like that, I don't think it would have changed very much. Um, just going back to kind of, you know, we were talking about how we take a, a bit of enjoyment watching the U.S. maybe not go as far as they would like to in, in you know, the World Cup and, and international tournaments. But I guess growing up in the U.S., um, what would be your perspective? Why do you think that the U.S. hasn't gone further in these competitions? And I'd just like to clarify the U.S. men's team uh, because the women's team is fantastic. Um, but but do you have a take on that? Uh, I think I think it's because it's more difficult in the U.S. to consolidate all the best players um, together. And I think it's the uh, that dis I think it goes a little bit back to that distance thing, um, mm -hmm. where in 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 Europe it's a little bit easier to take the best players in a country, um, put them in a league that's 
traveling a couple hours every weekend and they're playing the the night the other best kids um just a city over while in the u.s it's a little more difficult to do that unless you're unless you're in some league that's that's flying every week i think that's definitely part of it um i am convinced that in my lifetime i will we will see the u.s win a world cup um i don't know when it will be yeah but i think (laughs) <laughs> I, that definitely a hot take. I mean, I'm coming on the show, right? I have to say something. <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, I think, I think, it, I think it will happen. I, the, yeah. I mean, and it, and it's showing now with just how many young players are coming out of even just the MLS and being incredible. Um, uh, what's the guy from Bayern? I know he's Canadian, but I mean, I, I, I think yeah. that kind of Alfonso Davies. Alfonso Davies. He, I know he's Canadian, but I mean, I would, I would count that as as the youth system in, in I guess, North America as as part yeah. of it. But it's then you got like um, Weston McKenney and and that the new guy for um, Dortmund, uh, Reina, who's also American. All these guys are are coming over eighteen, nineteen, twenty year olds that are not just doing okay, but they're thriving, and and some of them are almost on the on either starters or on the brink of becoming starters on championship level teams. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I think that you guys have such good talent. The US has such good talent uh, coming up now. Like even the Pulisic, Dest, uh, Yedlin, like all these players that are doing fantastic uh, all over Europe. And like you said, are getting into starting 11s. Um, do you think it's better for them? I guess it, it is in the, in the sense that they get more, they, the, the leagues are, at, at this point in time, better in Europe than obviously the MLS. But do you think that at some point, the MLS is known for like a lot of players to come here to retire, right? Um, like uh, Rooney, uh, I guess Ibrahimovic went back, but Ibrahimovic is a, is a absolute monster. So um, he's not part of one of the ones that uh, this fits. But do you think that these players uh, should come back to the MLS to help it grow? Or do you think it, it's good that they're going to Europe and they should maybe finish out their careers there? That's a hard question. I think, I think, so I think just with how the MLS is organized, I don't think that's going to happen just as, as the, the, all the salary rules that I'm not going to pretend like I understand all of them, but I think just with how the MLS is built currently, it's very good for at least growing it as, as, as a, as a league and, and making it more entertaining. And I don't think at the moment it's, it, it, it is the, the league that, can grow as much. I don't think these players necessarily. I don't, it's hard. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to say because also I think living in the U.S. is 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 quite a shock to a lot of these players who have lived their entire lives in in Europe, and um, some of these cities aren't really as as nice as living, say, in Rome or in Milan or uh, yeah. Yeah. in 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 Monaco where you're not paying taxes and. <laughs> all these things so yeah. it it's well, it's yeah it's hard and just another thing on that is that i think that there is a general shift in kind of the fan base and the mentality around football in the u.s um because people are becoming more and more interested in it you know before it was just during the world cup um and then it would disappear completely you know interest in football would disappear completely for three and a half years up until the lead up of the next world cup 
Um, but this kind of shift and people becoming more interested in not only the international teams and, and the U.S. team, but but these national teams in the MLS have allowed more focus and attention to be brought to it, more money to be involved, um, you know, and people to therefore scout talent more effectively. And so this change, I think, um, will increase the effectiveness of the men's team, um, but also will be more will make it more appealing for for players to stay in America uh, and to contribute to that that growth of the MLS. Mm-hmm. I think I think history is part of it as well. So it, it, playing in the there, if you're a youth, if if you're a, if if you're a young guy, no one, I I don't think anyone goes. Uh, I want to I want to win uh, the the league in the MLS. You you say I want to win the Champions League and and, mm-hmm. and or or go play in the Premier League. So I think that the history kind of it plays a part in it as well. Um, and, and that's only going to take time. So I mean, if this if 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 the MLS continues to have these, frankly, uh, record-breaking attendances, attendance numbers, and all these, and and continues to have viewing, I I think, I think it's on the right path, and I think it should just maintain it for the moment. Right. So, like, um, I guess switching gears a little bit to Serie A, uh, me personally, I guess my opinion of it, the Italian league is is very like up and down. Um, I can't really define the Italian league the way I can define like the Premier League or the French league. Um, it's not as binary because like a few years ago um, there was the Serie A scandal um, and the match fixing. And then um, recent years they've had a lot of uh, Italian teams have made it far in the Champions League um, and the league has become more interesting. But then on the other side of things, um, you know, I, I'm just I'm noticing like inconsistencies in teams. Like for example, Napoli now are in the UEFA, the Europa League, and then in general, like if usually if a Premier League team wants to loan out um, some of their players to get uh, playing time, um, they kind of tend to, or at least more recently, tend to offload into Serie A. So I was just curious, like, what are your thoughts on how Serie A is progressing, um, just as a league as a whole, like the talent, um, things like that. I I think uh and you brought up the scandal and I think that's probably the biggest thing that ruined Serie A for 10 years. Um mm-hmm. I I mean in 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 the 90s and the early 2000s the Serie A was the le- was the best league in the world. Um and and we had uh, Milan winning uh, uh Champions Leagues left and right kind of like how Real Madrid was winning it with probably one of the best teams to ever exist. Um, I think the scandal is is the biggest thing that hurt the US, uh, the, the the Serie A, and I think um, that kind of hurt it in a moment where football is kind of growing as as uh, as as a sport to watch, and I think the Premier League kind of grew into. Uh, into the position of being the league to watch around the world, um, and, and and in doing so, uh, just Serie A has had less money to be doing mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. I, when I look at uh, uh, the Premier League, and you have some of the the lowest, um, some of the, the 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 worst teams in the in the Premier League spending huge amounts of money, and then we have uh, Genoa, who's been in Serie A for almost 10 years now and for us spending 20 million euros is is a huge purchase and is is a is a 
team changing <laughs> purchase. Like, I think that's the difference at the at the moment, and it's it's started to grow at least. Now I can watch Serie A on ESPN, where before I was having to stream it illegally the whole time, <laughs> just because I couldn't find it anywhere to watch. Yeah. Um, so I think that kind of goes part of it, and I think the, the the money is definitely probably the biggest thing right now. It's also, it's also it's uh, it's I don't I don't know if this was part of the question. I think it's also a different, a completely different um, form of football compared to the Premier League, uh, and and it's 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 not the same. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to say it's not the same sport, but it's it's definitely a a different game as far as uh, Premier League sometimes can be more exciting because it's a little bit more physical a lot more i would say way faster so they're going uh, they're going after each other pretty much the whole match while in italy you have a ton of teams um that are taking it a little slow you know moving the ball a, a little bit uh, more in the back trying to find like the 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 tactic openings rather than uh sometimes mm-hmm. the brute force that you see in the in the premier league which is sometimes more exciting yeah mm-hmm. i think Atalanta has kind of changed that a little bit and, and proving that you can not necessarily have to, uh, you can let the other team, con- uh, you can concede a couple goals and still win if you keep scoring and, and, and having right. hope on in Serie A. And I think Gasparini has kind of turned Serie A over and, and I think coaches might start realizing that that's uh, something that can be done. But I think the, 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 the sport in the, in Italy is completely different, and sometimes I would say not as fun to watch. Actually, not even sometimes. I'd say most of the time, not as fun to watch <laughs> compared to the Premier League. I mean, still, I think for for someone that doesn't watch Serie A, like you know, for a long time, these teams like Milan, uh, Inter, and and uh, and and Milan were not doing so well, and then now they're getting all these players, uh, coaches, uh, like you said, and and are exciting teams to watch Atalanta last season the Champions League was was amazing to watch man um so I think that that you know it's exciting times for the for the league yeah more into uh I guess the current season just because you know COVID has been such a big part of of you know I mean everything in general um I don't know if you you've heard this but and it might be I don't know if it's true or not but a friend sent me an article about the fact that Lazio might be our face might face relegation because um, they breached some health protocols related to COVID-19. They had a couple of players that were barred from playing uh, in the Champions League and uh, then went on to play uh, in their Serie A match. I think against Torino it was. Um, so, uh, you know, like, how, how do you think that, you know, the COVID's being handled in Serie A, like, and are they taking, like, measures to, to ensure, like, you know, the players are safe and you know, can still continue the games? I, I don't know. I don't think they're. I don't think they're doing much. Um, it kind of seems <laughs> like one person. I mean, it's odd that they, they, one person in in the team has it gets. Uh, it seems like every team has had somebody catch the virus, and then the whole team explodes into the, the whole team has it. Uh, yeah. I I don't know about the Lazio thing. I actually very interested now. I need to look that up. Um, but I can speak. For for Genoa in particular, they were the first team in in Serie A to have to um, cancel a match because everyone had COVID. We had twenty players that were that that had the 
had the disease and we couldn't play the game. So we actually, our game against Torino was, was delayed and they, they put this rule in where you can only delay one game. So if, if you have to delay two, the second one is a forfeit. Oh, um, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. So it, it's, I don't know if they're, and, and I think Italy actually just closed down again. Um, and they had a specific rule for football where calcio can keep going on. I think yeah, similar yeah. similar to what the Premier League has done. So I don't think right. they're really, <laughs> I don't think they really care that much. Uh, it kind of seems like these players are physically. I think they're the way they're taking it is these players are so physically fit that they'll be okay. Um, <laughs> but I don't know if that's the right way to go about this. Yeah. Right, right. So maybe um, close. I wanted to close off by asking you more about Genoa. Um, I remember when, when we were staying together, like we were talking about how they're slowly building up their team. Uh, some of their players are, or their quality players are staying put. Um, and this season, you know, you got your Pajaka, um, Perrin stayed, um, you know, you Pandev stayed. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, you have some good players like Barami and, and Destro. Um, do you think, obviously they're 18th right now, but uh do you think they'll fare better, worse, or the same, or is it just so unpredictable with Genoa? I think it's so unpredictable. I think this is the team changes so much. It it still does. I mean, we keep we're. Mm. I mean, even the players you mentioned—they're all players of of the past. Like these are all players that were good five years ago. I mean, uh, Piazza maybe with the the. the the only exception being that he had his uh, knee injury that has kept him out for a year, and he hasn't been mm. the same since. But it's hard with Genoa because we have uh, often we have young players that are uh, promising, and we sell them immediately uh, the year after um, for next to nothing. Somehow, I don't know how you get players like Chiesa, who's playing for for a team like Fiorentina, who is also struggling was struggling with relegation and he cost 60 million. And then we have players like Perrine for us, who's been on the national league and we sell him for like 12 million. So I, I don't understand how right. that happens sometimes. Um, right. Do you think it's a, is there like a, a, a level of, obviously I don't want to make assumptions, but is there a level of like um, relationships within the Italian league and like a, a sense of like, who is like, uh, you know, at the, on a management style, on the, the ownership level, um, potential, I don't even want to say corruption, but like, you know, the, the type of relationships you have that dictate these these figures? I, I think so. Um, I know the yeah. the president of Genoa uh, is this guy named Preziosi, and he's very good friends with the, I don't know if it's not the president of Milan, but the director, um, uh, the one who's at least managing the team, um, not the mm. not the manager the uh what's it called whatever it doesn't director matter. Of football? the director yeah the director of milan is good friends with the president of genoa so we keep selling them players mm. for next to nothing and we've always i guess half joked because we'll say it as a joke but i think there's a little bit of truth behind <laughs> whenever we say it in the family but we we think whenever we sell these players to to Milan that he maybe pockets like a, like a maybe half a million and puts it in his pocket instead. Um, <laughs> we had um, El Shirawi 
was 16 for Jamon when he was going to be the next best uh, Italian player um, in, in Calcio. He was 16 playing for Genoa, and I'd actually met him once uh, when I had gone to a youth camp. But we sold him for 18 million. It was a hot take back then until he went to Milan and scored like 11 goals in like nine games. And, but at the, at the moment, he was supposed to be the next big, the, the, the next best youth player in the, in, the, in the Italian league. And we sold him for 18 million. I don't, I don't understand how that happens. That's nothing for what he was supposed to be worth. Yeah. And do you think it's finance? Because in the last episode of this podcast, we were talking to Ian Underwood, who's a Carlisle United fan, which is um, mm-hmm. a team in League Two in the uh, in the EPL. And he was saying, you know, that it's a bit of a vicious cycle because they sell people um, for less than they're worth, but it's to keep the team not afloat, but to keep the team going and running um, because they need that finances. So they end up selling off their best players. Um, you know, to keep the finances, to keep the team going. And then because of that, they're not able to improve and, and move up in the table and therefore move up in the league. But you, I mean, I guess you're insinuating that it's a bit more to do with corruption than it is, you know, financial status. Is that, <laughs> would you agree with that? <laughs> it's probably, I'm, I don't know, I'm, I'm saying it with zero proof. So I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> Starting a controversy. It, it's yeah. It's always just been a joke that we've said, but uh, uh, maybe we kind of we've said it so many times that we kind of believe it at this point. But it, I'm sure there's definitely some financial reasons for for a lot of these sales as well. Um, it's it's difficult as far as general goes because we're not even we're one of the like we're in like the mid tier as far as spending goes with our players. Um, and and right. the, the play does not show it. Atalanta is paying their players, I think, almost half of what Genoa is, pay, is spending on, on, on salaries. And, and they're, I mean, <clears throat> it just shows in their play how much they're capable of doing with, the, with that money. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure maybe a financial part goes, goes with it. But Genoa has a little bit of money. So I, I, would, I would hope that they could keep some players sometimes. Listen, Peter, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us. This has been really, really interesting. Um, and we really appreciate you sacrificing watching the, the Roma Genoa game. I just saw there was another goal, so apologies. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> um, somehow we let Mikatarian yeah, no, get a hat trick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love you. No, but we really, really appreciate you taking the time to, to come and chat with us. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you, guys. It was a lot of fun. I hope it works out. <laughs>